follow a fascinating story of cultural transition as well as deeper insights into the world of clinical and neuropsychology with Michelle Reed. Michelle grew up in Papua New Guinea with only black boys as friends learning how to fight to make her way in the world. That was until she was shipped off to an all-girls white boarding high school in Queensland which made for an abrupt transition which is fascinating to hear about. Wanting to make further sense of the world, Michelle studied behavioural science at university, which has led her to where she is now, being both a clinical and neuropsychologist. She talks about how focusing on attachment styles and thinking patterns is central to her approach and how treatment follows three levels, developing coping skills, going into the trauma and then future templating. It's super rare to meet someone with such a unique background and listen to how that transition became the basis of her vocation today. So enjoy, Michelle. Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. Today my guest is Michelle Reed. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thanks. Um, thank you very much for coming and making time to be with us today. One of the questions I like to open up with at the start is how people came to be in Western Australia. Okay. Um, Which, mm -hmm. in and of, normally this is a small part of um, the podcast, but today it's going to be a larger part, isn't it? Well, if I start from the beginning, yeah. but if you wanted just the part that got me over here, I, but smaller. Well, let's start with the beginning. Okay. Okay. Oh, well, I was born and raised in Papua New Guinea. Um, uh, I grew up there. Um, I didn't do primary school because there were no schools, so my mum taught me at home. Um, I guess uh, the first five years I was in town, so got sent to a kindy and lots of uh, kids, you know, black, white, brown, brindle, yellow, red, the whole lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, but the people around me were mainly boys so I you know had a few friends who were only only boys because that was my age group yeah so um, I played with them somewhere along the line my father decided that uh, I needed to know how to fight um, so that I would have friends and certainly that was a big large part just for fun really you know so how, how did Fighting equal friends. Um, people just used to wrestle as that was one of the pastimes to right. wrestle and yeah yeah. So it's more like roughhousing then. Yeah, so th yeah, throwing someone on the ground and pinning them down and you know uh, stuff like that. So that was just seemed to happen all the time. I don't know if it's just yeah. So and it was a sort of fun thing to do for everybody, and that's what people did. Yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, there were little tackers. Yeah, so that was just how I grew up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could tell you a lot about that. Um, and um, then, yeah, went out to the bush. My dad had some land there. He was growing, growing stuff. Um, he was in the First World War and stayed on. And my, oh, in the Second World War and stayed on in New Guinea and my mum went up there 
for a holiday in 1948. She was a dietitian and uh, they didn't have a dietitian so somehow uh, a job got made for her and uh, yeah so they met in that time and yeah so by the time I came along they, I think my dad was about 40 so my mum was 37 so mm. yeah so they had their careers or what they were doing before they sort of got married and had kids yeah 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 so I grew up in uh, yeah Papua New Guinea um, my mum taught me at home um, my sister and I mm. she's two years younger and uh, and um, yeah, and then I had all my playmates. They were all boys, or 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 you know, kids from the village, uh, tribal kids. So yeah, yeah. So that's how I grew up. Yeah, and then um, so the things we'd do, um, we'd play a, a form of soccer. That was if we didn't have a ball, we sort of played anyway. Mm. Um, so with someone, if you were, if your team was in possession of the ball and you had the ball, well, you became the ball basically. Yeah. So your job was to duck and weave and get to a tree, which was a goal. And if I touched you in any way, um, then I was the ball and it was ducking and weaving. And right. if you wanted to pass, you touched one of your team or they touched you to take it on. Yeah. And so that, that was that game until we got a ball. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, building kunai huts, um, spear fishing, climbing trees, all that, that sort of things to do. And you, you sorted out fights, you sorted out disagreements, and that was the same when I was little, by who won the fight. Right. Yeah. Simple as that. As simple as that. So. Going back to when I was little, someone asked me a question. If it rains, if it's raining here, does it rain all over the world? And I hadn't even thought of that. And I said, oh, yeah, I suppose so. And then this person came back and said, well, my mum reckons that's not right, you know? So I don't think we had a fight about that because I went then and asked my mum. But if you, if you know, you're going to stick to your guns, it would then mean a fight. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there are lots of fights and there are a lot of rules, you know. No There's certain simplicity about yeah. it, isn't it? Yeah, so no, no kicking, no biting, no pinching, pulling hair and stuff, yeah. But, you know, no one was really ever hurt, yeah, so. Apart from your, you know, um, pride. Pride, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, how long did you stay during your? So, so there, back up till five, because I was the only girl. And the other thing, it's similar to New Guinea. Um, in New Guinea, they have, um, if you're having a fight, if you were disagreeing with your, a fellow down the road then um, it was okay to, you know, if you saw their kids going by, to just give the kids a hiding or worse, you know, right. tribally. Um, so, um, <coughs> so,
so you know being the only female I guess I was copped lots of people wanting to fight me because you know if Andrew who was a couple of years older than me if he was having a disagreement with someone then suddenly I found myself attacked because I was seen as being mm. you know one of what you know mates with him so was it so scary? I ended up was no, it scary well, stuff no 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 it wasn't um You'd be a bit surprised sometimes, and if they were bigger than you, yeah, you might just get a momentarily, but you just did what you did, you know. So I ended up having lots of practice. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so, and then my father had taught me um, and given me lots of confidence by losing to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, those sort of wrestles yeah. as a kid and and him losing to you, so you have lots of confidence. And you basically learn about your, you know, your weight and stability and stuff. And it was mainly just wrestling and throwing someone on the ground and pinning them down. Yeah. Yeah. And then they usually say, give up. That was how it went, yeah. you know, as little kids. And then that was it, that was done. Yeah. And then, so, so you didn't go to primary school? So no, um, so w yeah, when I was between five and six, um, we moved out to the bush. Um, Dad had built a house there and he was leased some land and was growing, growing you know, um, peanuts at the time. Hmm. So we all moved out there, yeah. And, um, and then I just got friends with the local kids and it was again boys because, as I found out later, the girls weren't taught pidgin. They had uh, their local lingo, but they didn't speak pidgin. Boys were taught to speak pidgin, so I, that's who I played with. Yeah. Yeah, and in New Guinea there's about 860 different languages, so, um, you know, I might have learnt some, some of that local lingo, but yeah. not like lots and lots, because pidgin lot. was the way. You, you went, so that's how mm. I grew up with those boys, yeah, yeah. So, and where, yeah. where did you go for high school? Yeah, so um, when it came to high school, my, um, there was no schools around, so I would have to be sent to boarding school. So my parents decided I need a bit of white, white culture. Um, and so my mum gave me a choice of two schools, which I went and visited, her old school in Geelong and um, a school where other New Guinea kids were going in Queensland and uh, so I just chose the one in the warmer warmer, warmer weather and I thought closer to home, hmm. you know, with an idea of trying to get home maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that was an interesting experience, yeah. What was it like there? going from, because you spent all your time in yeah, Papua New Guinea yeah, yeah. and then all of a sudden you're off to Queensland. Yeah, so we did come down a couple of times on the holidays, you know, to, to visit rallies and stuff. But, uh, yeah, you know, like for, for some weeks and things, I think twice before then. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, one I can hardly remember, I was too young. And one yeah. when I was probably about nine or ten, hmm. when a lot of the boys were being sent off for their initiation. Um, so I, my parents took me down on holidays to Australia 
I assume that's what it was about, yeah. Mm. Uh, when I look back, yeah. Yeah, so coming to, to basically, to an, going from mainly all black boys to all white girls overnight was an interesting <laughs> Tell experience. Tell me about that. Then. Tell me about that. <laughs> okay, so um, the first night I was there, I, I thought I could speak English, but I had my words mixed up. Well, I had a lot of pigeon words that I thought was English. Yeah. So I asked this girl, I said, what's for Kai? And she said, what? And I said, what's for Kai? And she said, what? What's for Kai? And it sort of, and I thought to myself, she's having a go at me, you know. She knows what I'm saying. She can hear me. What, what is for Kai? What? You know, and so I just went bang and I decked her. <laughs> and then a couple of days later, I discovered that Kai was not an English word. So, and what were you actually asking? <laughs> yeah, you know, what's what's to eat? What's for dinner? Yeah. You know? um, yeah, and so there was a few times, you know, when I talked about gurias, people didn't know what I was talking about, which is an earthquake. Yeah. So there was a few instances and I would never know what word it wasn't English until someone didn't you know yeah yeah but I didn't ha didn't hit anyone again after that. <laughs> after that as far as that was concerned yeah right yeah I was yeah. going to say did, how, how did you go with tempering down the fighting well if oh, the other thing I didn't understand was sarcasm that took me two years it took me one year to hear the two messages and another year to put it together. Hmm. Um, but if I noticed anyone, you know, how girl, girls are, and I'd never run across it, uh, Tina, they, they use their mouths a lot to try and uh, hurt people. Hmm. Uh, and if I, often I didn't even understand what they were saying. Yeah. But if I did understand it and I found it offensive, then I just knocked them down because I didn't know how to use words like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I never hurt them. I just put them flat on their back, which would give them a bit of a fright. <laughs> <laughs> People must have not necessarily used, done that very often to you then. No, it was a good thing in some ways. Because yeah. uh, I didn't get to hear too much, <laughs> too mm. much, you know, nasty stuff, you know. So it, that kept that away, yeah. Um, so... Um, did you miss home during that time? Oh, yes. I used to count the days to get home. I made sure I worked hard because I knew my dad had taken out loans hmm. to, to get, keep me at school. So I thought, yeah, well, I better not do. waste his money, do the right thing there. Hmm. But yeah, so um, I remember this girl coming to me. She wasn't one of the nasty girls and saying, oh, you know, this is... Do you know other girls are saying you're a bush kanaka, you live in a grass hut, you wear grass skirts and you eat people? You know, she wasn't saying it in a nasty way, but she was trying to let me. I said, oh well, you, you can just let them know that, you know, they can thank their lucky stars or thank God that uh, they're not, um, they don't get put beside me uh, in the dormitory uh, next term. You know, because, you know, uh, 
they might not wake up in the morning if I get a bit hungry. <laughs> <laughs> so I, by that stage, I'd learnt enough to say something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so there, there was, yeah, so I was on detention a lot. Yeah. For one reason or another, which I can't even remember. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so what else was, uh, oh, yeah, the clothes. I just didn't have a clue. Mm. You know, like, it was miniskirt era. I looked at that, you know, I saw how they were into their clothes and makeup and falling in love with some bloke and then the next week not being. And I found that really strange. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't understand that at all. So, you know, I never wore shoes, so... Uh, the school took me down to put some shoes on to me and I worked out the length uh, and they were damn uncomfortable than I expected them to be. Yeah. But what I didn't expect is that a couple of days later that I could hardly walk because yeah. I, I hadn't got the width correct. Yeah. And it was squashing my foot, so yeah. So, um, and then they were telling me I have to wear them so I thought, I can't wear these shoes, and they weren't listening. So I thought, oh, I'll go and up to the principal. So I went and knocked on her door and, yeah, and said, I'm saying I've got to wear these things, but I can't because, you know, I can hardly walk in them and my feet's hurting all the time. And, um, yeah, and she was sitting there, bigger feet than me, in the same shoes. And she said, well, my feet are bigger than yours. Anyway, she sent me away, but the interesting thing was, about a week later, she changed the rules. And I picked up on that because I knew then she'd heard me, but she just didn't want people coming over teachers' heads yes. to her. To, um, mm. So then I didn't have to wear them anymore. I'd got it wrong with the, with the, the width and Mm. Yeah, eventually I found a pair of shoes that were being exported to New Guinea that had, you know, wide at the front, so um, I learnt to wear shoes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and the other thing is I just couldn't um, do the whole, you know, my mum actually sent me down with her woolen skirts and I'd never worn skirts so it was just you know shorts and that's it basically or a pair of jeans yeah that's it um, and um, and um, so and she you know she was born in 1923 so can you imagine these big long thick mm. skirts that yeah so, so Somewhere along the line, and I'm not quite sure, it was early on, I sort of made that decision that, well, I can't go down that track. Um, so, and you know, I'd had enough of stuff saying, you know, putting me down from because of where I came from. Yep. And I heard enough of that. So somewhere along the line, I made the decision that I was going to be proud of where I came from and who I was. And if people didn't like that, that was their problem. Yep. So I think that held me in really uh, good stead. Mm. You know, it wasn't till probably my 40s or 50s that I learnt the wisdom to actually hold my tongue 
when I knew that it wasn't going to get anywhere. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah. But anyway, it saved me all, a lot of the angst and the bullying that a lot of kids would have. Yes, yeah. shooting the mouth off. Yeah. So, um, or from hearing, you know, getting bullied by other kids with the nasty words, that's what girls do. Yeah. And if I'd been in a boys' school, probably it would have been just, yeah, wrestling and fighting and stuff and like that. And done with. And done with, yeah. That was much easier from my point of view. Mm. Yeah. So how did you end up coming to Western Australia from that? Mm. So um, I had got into motorbikes and I'd travelled, you know, just um, as soon as I got some money back in the 80s, you know. Well, I actually got into uh, the work I do from that time in in New Guinea and that cross-cultural thing. Yeah. And just seeing how people are different, different perspectives and, uh, you know, they see this is, this is how it is, but I didn't have that perspective. So, and, and then when I, I, I think it took about two years before I got any friends at school, so I sat in the one place I could see a distance and I read every animal book in the library and if any one gave me cheek I gave them a hiding and I got on with my work for some reason they picked me for the sports teams um, even though I wasn't a, a fast runner mm. um, and um, where do we go from there so uh, yeah and then people started asking me somehow or other I end up being like a go-between between people who were, I got, who were fighting, and right. and so you know, hmm. giving a different perspective and giving a different, and that seemed to work a lot. Yeah. Um, and the first friend I got at school was um, by giving this girl a good whack and making her nose bleed. Right. <laughs> and she became my friend. Right. Yeah. So I think that was uh, in the second year I was there. It was a time Whitlam had... Um, yeah. Whitlam had been given the sack, I think. Or, no, Whitlam had just come into power. Okay. And there was a girl there whose father was in cabinet. Right. And she was standing there in front of the library, you know, looking down her nose at me, sort of saying... And he was going to get independence, you know, uh, in, you know, in two years uh, or in, you know, now, I can't remember, but she was wrong. So yeah. New Guinea was getting uh, self-government, which wasn't independence. Yeah. And I s explained that to her. I said, no, New Guinea is getting yeah. self-governance, gov gov not independence. That's later down the track. So... Um, so she was poo-pooing me, yeah, as if I as if I didn't know about my own country, and then all her friends were there backing her, yeah. And I just thought, how dare someone try and tell me they know more about my country than I do, yeah. And I just whacked, yeah, yeah. So she ran off with a blood nose, and I heard the commotion of the teacher coming out to see what was going on. So I just sat down quickly just hoped no one would dob me in. 
I thought if they do, I'll just have to give them a hiding. <laughs> They'll get one too. <laughs> no one did. The teacher took me, yeah. And next, then in, yeah, I'm, I always sat by myself on the bus. On Fridays, they used to take us out, you know, for geology or mm. geography experiments or, and stuff. So I was always sitting on my own. And so I uh, got this little note passed through. You know, is anyone sitting with you on the bus? So I just said no. And note back saying, can I sit beside you on the bus? I said, sure. And that was the girl that I'd just clocked. Yeah. <laughs> so I got my first friend that way. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Hmm. So when you left school, um, you're now a clinical psychologist. Mm, yeah, yeah. Is that something you went to straight away or...? Um, yeah, so I guess part of what informed me is uh, just how the different mm. different perspectives and different value systems and, you know, not understanding sarcasm, you know, not yeah. getting the humour and sort of coming through all that. And I, so that piqued my interest. Yeah, so, um, and I knew what I didn't want to do, but mm. I didn't know exactly what I did want to do. So it was so, studying psychology an effort to try and make more sense of the world? Well, it was sort of, um, um, it was the last day that I had to get all our preferences in. I knew I had to go to uni, more or less, because the things I might have done otherwise, like mechanics or whatever, yeah. wasn't what girls did back then. There was no avenues that way. Mm. So, um, um, so, and yeah, and I was... <sighs> I just, so I just said, ah, oh, bloody hell, what am I going to do? I've looked through the whole book and I said, you know, if, if there's a God, just give me the, just yeah. tell me what. Anyway, I had, I dropped the book and I picked it up and this thing just went, hit me, whack, behavioural science. I didn't even know what it was. Yeah. But it just hit me like this, jumped out at me. I said, oh, that's it. I will start. <laughs> so, and it just fitted in with that, with, you know, so um, fitted in with my previous experiences. And mm. yeah, so I did that and, and then carried on. Yeah. So that was just a three year course. And then, of course, the whole course um, ended up being 10 years, but I didn't do it all at once. Yeah. 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 Hmm. So, yeah, and that's exactly, yeah, I, I see it as a vocation. You know, I love what I do. Yeah. Um, I'm glad I'm there, and um, it's my profession, but also my vocation. So, hmm. yeah. And this brought you to the Kimberley originally? Yeah, so I'd come, I'd gone travelling. Um, when I first graduated, I just you know had four years on, uh, of psychology, so working as a psychologist, and um, uh, you know I'd been working around various areas in Queensland, and but I just had this big push to go travelling. So as soon as I and I had got into motorbikes, I got into that straight at uni. You know it was cheaper than a car. Yeah. Um, so. So as soon as I got any money in my pocket, I just 
got a ticket and headed over and yeah so I'd pick up a motorbike and just so I had ridden basically through Europe and through Britain and Ireland and Scotland I you know went back kept going back whatever I hadn't done and you know when I ran out of mm. money I came home got work so on this occasion what you're mentioning I had come that's back that's a long just at even those trips that's a long way from a girl who grew up in Papua New Guinea yeah isn't it? yeah yeah so so yeah um, I just had this burning urge to go exploring yeah and, uh, the best way to do it was on a motorbike and mm. so that's what I did you know so as soon as there was I decided you know first I actually went I decided what bike I'd really like to bring home mm -hmm. and I'd done my research and um, so first I went to America I had a, a girlfriend there and uh, then I got work there to, with the horses because you know, I'd grew up, grown up with horses and uh, uh, you know uh, on a, a stables racing stables and you know just gets enough money to get a ticket to the next place mm. and and then I wanted to get to Italy to get an Italian bike, a moto, as they say in Australia, a moto guzzi. Yeah. And I arrived mm -hmm. in Italy and saying, well, where's the moto guzzi factory? And two days later, no one could understand me. And then someone said, oh, no, no, moto guzzi. Yeah. Okay. And then, <coughs> so I changed that, moto guzzi. Then they knew what I was talking about. So yeah. that took two days. And then I found out where the factory was and I went there and they interviewed me and um, decided that I was um, for real and then made a bike because I wanted a bike made for Australia. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, great. And I thought I was going for an 800, but it, it was, they discontinued that and it was a thousand cc. That was great, even better. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, waited for them to do that and yeah, and then just decided, oh, which way shall I go, north or south? I'll oh, head north for the moment, yeah. And then I had lots of adventures, yeah. made lots of friends. I was just still friends, you know. Uh, and, um, yeah, but I came back on that occasion, how I got to Western Australia without money and um, looking for work, you know, and something had come up in Queensland, but it wasn't happening. And it was a four-year trained job with family and children's services there and then suddenly I discovered that people were ringing me up because I knew people and the whole team had quit yeah. so I knew there was something seriously wrong there and I thought well I can't wait for that I just looked in the paper and I thought oh there's a job in the Kimberley I haven't been there that's another new area to explore mm. and so I just uh, applied for that and then they rang me up for an interview and I did, didn't take it too seriously I was just in my mum's house you know lying there on the floor doing an interview and next thing they wanted me over there so so that's how I got to Western Australia yeah so I landed in the Kimberley um, but you know they paid for whatever I had to come over um, which included my bike and just a few things really that I could fit on the bike and uh, so I was there for four years and I uh, loved it up there yeah you know so um, it's sort of 
you know, a smile goes a long way. You walk down the street, you smile at people, and that goes a long, long way in the, you know, yeah. with people. And um, and uh, this fella turned up at my house, and and he also worked for the same uh, family and children's services. They changed their names so often, and he was an Aboriginal bloke in the Kimberley. And uh, so I sat down and give him a feed and. And just he was so hungry, he just kept so he ate you know a week's worth of food, fine, not a problem, um, you know, and I didn't know, but he was checking me out, so right, you know, to see what kind of white fellow I might have been, yeah, so then he decided that that was probably more black than white, yeah, <laughs> and yeah, so after that, if they were having any meetings that suddenly included black fellas. I was always invited along. Mm. So, um, and he used to say that to people, that's just more black than white. <laughs> mm. Yeah, and I had a manager complain about that <laughs> at one stage, mm. that I was more black than white. Oh, he was meaning it as a put down, but I actually took it as a compliment and told yeah. him so. So yeah, um, and it was, it was very familiar in lots of ways. Um, to New Guinea, of course mm. the culture's different, but you know. Um, Some of the underlying yeah. rules. So, yeah, um, it's, and you know, you stop and pick someone up if they're walking somewhere and needing a lift and you're in some air-conditioned mansion of a vehicle. Mm. Uh, the government didn't like that very much. I guess yeah. their insurance didn't cover it. But you know, I was living in this town. You, you've got to make connections if you, you're doing that kind of job. So yeah. that I took no notice of that, that sort of thing. So can't yeah. give people a lift, you know. It's, it's just treating people as people, you know. Mm. Yeah. So um, yeah, and um, they did want me to go and do law business, which I said no to, because um, in New Guinea they had wanted me to do law business too, but I said no to that. I, I didn't want to have all the tattoos on my face when I knew that, you know, I was coming, spending a lot of time in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought, no, I can't do that because um, that would be disrespectful to the New Guinea people. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So what is the, what is the work you do now? Yeah, so um, I... A clinical psychologist, and back in the old days, and also a neuro. Yeah, yeah. So um, one of only a few in Western Australia. Yeah, and the combination is very rare in Western mm. Australia. What is I a neuropsychologist? So, um, so that's a difference. Everyone does the same four years of mm. to become a psychologist, and after that, there's different areas you can move into. Mm. Um, and clinical psychology is one, and neuropsychology is another. And I'd actually started work at Fremantle Hospital as a clinical psych and they wanted someone who was also a neuropsych and they offered me a scholarship to go and do the neuropsych which was uh, a master's, a full master's plus, plus a supervision back in those days, it was two years. Yep. Uh, I got one year off. Um, because of prior experience having a, 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 a doctorate in clinical yeah. psychology. So they gave me a year off. So it was a three years full time and I did it 
half time across five years basically. Mm. And the health service gave me five hours a week to attend lectures. Yeah. Yeah, so basically and there was a there's um about four of us from the health department across various areas who who bit the bullet and did that. Yeah. Yeah. Took that and what step. is the difference between clinical psychology and neuropsychology? So neuropsychology is mainly the assessment of brain damage. Mm. So in a hospital, um, at, I work with older adult in the mental health section, but sometimes if the psychiatrist just can't work out what is actually going on, so you might there might be a, a question of differential diagnosis. Mm. So some of the questions might be, is this a dementia? Yeah. Or is it a late onset schizophrenia? So then it might come to mm. me. Or we think this is a dementia, but what kind? So it comes to me. And mostly, um, if it's clear that nothing comes to me in that in that regard. And sometimes, and they do the capacity assessments as well, you know. Does this person have the capacity to refuse medical treatment? Or does this person person have capacity to live independently at home mm. and mostly the GPs or the psychiatrists can can make those assessments but if it's a bit on the borderline and they they look okay and they do well on some of the basic um, like mini mental states which isn't very sensitive to do badly on that you have to be you know probably a moderate dementia to start getting yep. bad on those tests and if you um, had a good education you're probably going to blitz those anyway so if it's a little bit on the borderline or they can't quite work it out then they'll ask me to um, do further cognitive assessment or neuropsych assessment to work yeah. out so we look at then the behavior and uh, how they do on all those tests, you know, like the intelligence tests, memory tests, etc., and uh, look at the behaviour, what sort of mistakes they make, their history, and and get all and put it together and and try and make that um, answer those questions. Hmm. And a clinical psychologist um, is doing the therapy, the talk stuff. Talk stuff. Yeah, yeah to help people who have who are hurting, yes. you know, emotionally or sometimes, you know, um, physically, but it might be uh, based on their emotion, mm. you know, so, so yeah, so that's basically the difference. So a site will do their assessment, but it's a different kind of assessment, Yeah, you know, so, so working out what the actual problem is, you know, what's how much, you know, if you're working from an attachment perspective, which is what I do as far as a clinic, hearing about that, so mm. you know where some of the vulnerabilities might be, looking at their thinking patterns, looking at how they cope, mm. you know, um, and the behaviour and the patterns, and then trying and finding a way to help that person. Um, how do you mean by their attachment? So, you know, when you're little, um, there's a lot of research now to show that <clears throat> what kind of parenting you had can influence the rest of your life. So, and this is where the neuropsychology helps to inform me as well. Mm. Um, so, 
little kids, you know, like babies and, you know, toddlers, young toddlers, they can't self-soothe so that when, when they're upset, it's the parents' job to pick mm. them up and give them a cuddle and self, help them self-soothe. Yes. So that actually stimulates a part of the brain to grow that will eventually help them to self-soothe. Themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So, and if people don't get that, then they never really learn how to soothe themselves when they're really upset. Mm. And then they have all sorts of difficulties through life. Yeah. So they lose their job, you know, their, their relationships don't last. Um, you know, they can find themselves in trouble with the law. You know, they can find themselves... Can act out and act yeah, out yeah, and act yeah. Out wanting. Because they haven't got that ability to self-soothe. Mm. Yeah. So that's just one example, but there's lots of different examples, you know. Mm. So um, you get a good idea, you know, if something horrible's happened, you know, if something's happened, mum or dad, you know, has um, uh, gone into a depression, you know, and it's not available emotionally. Mm. And, and depending on where it... So that first sort of seven or eight years is really critical for that. And all little kids are the centre of the world. They don't have a frontal lobe. So mm. when things go wrong, they um, think it's their fault. Yeah. So if parents are having an argument, they'll think it's their fault and they've got to fix it. You yeah. know? And it might, it's got nothing to do with them. You know, a friend of mine who was uh, going through a separation, you know, I said to him, you'd better check with your little girl because she probably thinks it's her fault. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, it's just, you know, between yeah. us. And I said, no, go, go and check with her. And mm. he came back to me and said, you know what? You're right. Yeah, you're right. You know, so... Um, mm. So, and then, you know, that, so you're the centre of the universe, so it's, it's your fault if things yeah. go wrong. Um, um, and uh, the positive side of that is, uh, I'll give you an example, is um, I was visiting my sister... Mm. And she had a young son, he was about seven, maybe eight, and I could hear him, it was almost like a prayer. Now she's an atheist, so there was none of that in, and I, he hadn't learnt to do that. So she, she, he was saying, I believe in fairies, I believe in fairies. And it went on and on for about ten minutes, which is quite a long time for such a young kid. And then he went off to play, and I went and had a look in his room and his mum had been reading him Peter Pan and they're up to that part where Wendy was saying um, you know fairies are dying because little kids are not believing in them anymore right so he was saving fairies lives mm. and he'd worked hard to do that you know 10 minutes is a long time for a seven eight year old yeah, kid yeah, yeah? and um, so that then is it like a positive thing i.e it gives him a sense of agency in the world Mm. But when that goes wrong, um, then they're thinking it's their fault, you know, parents are fighting and they'll try to fix it and it doesn't work, you know, and they get left with this sense. Mm. So, you know, so you can, and yeah, and people deal with it, different coping strategies, you know, some people become, 
you know, they try and overcompensate for that sense of not being good enough. Yeah. So they they become the super helpers, jumping in to help everybody whether yeah. they need help or not. And then, yeah. you know, so then not getting the love what, that they need. Uh, you know, still trying to get m mum's love or whatever. Yes. But, you know... It, if I do this, then I'll get the stuff I want. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So, I, so, so, yeah, yeah, and I'll feel good about myself, but it mm. never works, you see. And, yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, so it's that constant reinforcement then that mm. they are not good enough. So, and so you see, so that's someone who's <laughs> trying to overcome, and some people you know, just do, say, I am not good enough. And they fall into a hole. And then they start believing that story yeah, and they yeah. play that story. Yeah, yeah. I think the whole, I'm not good enough, I'm not deserved, mm. Mm. all of that. Mm. Having listened to a number of people on the podcast, mm. you hear how one of the biggest things I hear is people buy into that story yeah. until this epiphany and then they have to Almost do a lot of hard choose, work, yeah. But they have to make the choice mm. of going, I'm going to stop believing that story. Yeah. I'm going to start painting a new yeah. story. But then when it keeps getting reinforced in those ways, so then it's about giving the education yeah. and um, looking at their thinking. And, you know, people believe their feelings are the reality. So, you know, having a few mantras like, you know, feelings are not a good indicator of reality. Yep. It might feel that way. Yes. But you need to go and check the evidence. And sometimes, you know, they say, well, there's the evidence, you know, because it's never worked and people have just got cross with me. Yeah. So, you know, it's about, you know, helping them through that and seeing the, how they're making those um, mistakes, their thinking mistakes, I mm. guess. Um, and you know that maybe they're actually not helping. <laughs> yeah. You know by jumping in, and people can wear themselves out doing that. So that would be one example. Um, you said where pe people can wear themselves out by helping everyone else and yeah. not taking care of their own needs. Hmm. You know, so um, like they say, on an airplane, you've got to put the, the oxygen mask. mask on yourself before you can help your kids. No, so you see people then just wear themselves out and then fall into de a depression because they're just... Mentally, emotionally fatigued. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And uh, I was listening to uh, another colleague and who said, you know, these people who are the super helpers, I often see they've got big issues with osteoarthritis, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, so I guess that's his... I don't know. There actually might be some research on that, um, some pre preliminary research, but yeah. So but if you went into like Chinese medicine or something, there'd probably be a link. Yeah, so, but yeah, there is. So, you know, you can go in and um, sort that out, mm. that issue out, and the osteoarthritis will clear up. Will clear up. <laughs> so, um, you know, so there's always that overlap too. That's fascinating between... Mm. The physical and the psychological. Yes. Yeah. And the link between the two. Yeah. So, yeah. so I usually start from an attachment point of view, and then there's all sorts of different ways. Once attachment, I, then yeah. thinking patterns. 
Yeah, and I look at all that and there are different ways, so depending what the issue is, you know, if it's a simple straight depression, you know, you might be able to sort it from a top-down approach, you know, from the thinking and work down. But if there's more, if there's like complex trauma and years of abuse, mm. uh, just cha changing someone's think thinking is not going to cut it. Yes. You know? So um, there's a lot of other work that you might try other ways of going. So you learn different strategies. But you know that cognitive behavioural therapy is a good starting point. Yes. That, that it's like the the um, if you're going to take a dive, that's a good springboard to. Yeah, to, it's the first yeah. one to crack on. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, and then the great thing that I love about psychology is you never stop learning. Yeah. Yeah, and there's more stuff to learn, and as the neuroscience stuff comes in, you can fit it in with the psychology. Yes. And make more understanding of it. Bigger framework and yeah. understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, that's what, why I love it. Mm. And, you know, the other great thing that I love, probably the most important thing, is you see people get better. To yes. see people get better when they never the thought they, they do would. Life. Yeah. And they can enjoy life, you know. And I work a lot with older people. So, you know, to see some 75-year-old uh, for the first time in their life who's brought up kids without feelings, mm. um, who's, um, you know, walked down the street feeling that the world's a dangerous place and, and if they didn't know the person, they feel like running, but putting on a face, you know, just to get the shopping done. But to see those people... Um, just come out of their themselves and um, start to just live just their life. Yeah. the layers of anxiety would just drop off them. Yeah, it, you know, that sort of work, if you're dealing with um, all that complex trauma, it can take many years. And, you know, there are some, some people that, you know, if you go right to the extreme, you know, they, they're in there for decades doing mm. the work. Um, so... Yeah. Mm. So I, these days I was full time in the hospital and now I'm half time in the hospital or outpatient and inpatient and at Alma Street with old adults and I'm half time privately. So mm. I do some of the neuropsych and medico legal reports and um, yeah, and see people from a therapeutic perspective. Mm. You've obviously been doing this over here many years hmm. do you see have you seen a change in, in in the sort of things that are presented over the years I read it I read an interesting article not so long ago about how the cluster of issues that are presented to psychologists are almost linked to where society's moving and flowing hmm um, yeah, in some ways, I guess um, I remember reading for the first time back in the 80s about the sexual abuse, you know, and that book probably written by a social worker from here um, was groundbreaking because that was kept under wraps, yeah. you know, 
and now as society's moved on you're getting more and more of that and you know mm. um, um, mental health people are now becoming trauma informed mm. you know so I know on our team at Fremantle Hospital you know these days it didn't used to be the case but the people who go out to psychiatrists usually to, to see someone and um, either a nurse or a social worker they do their interview and they you know and they'll they'll note that whereas they, that was never asked previously about any kind of you know what was life lo like when you were little you mm. know so that you know they understand now about that attachment yeah and so now a lot of my referrals that come in are all about that you know the complex trauma stuff um, uh, and you know people have been in Heathcote from the Heathcote days like all their yeah. adult life have been in and out of hospital and to finally and no one's touched that because in the old days that wasn't seen or asked about mm. and what was driving all their issues was probably um, uh, unresolved stuff from then mm. and it's about so <laughs> helping them with that and there's new therapies coming up because you know, cognitive behavioural therapy on its own, the way I was taught, isn't going to help too much with that kind of stuff. So yes. other types of therapies and then they get the evidence for it, mm. you know. Um, um, so then you've got, got to go and learn all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it just gives you small tools and then you can a bit here and a bit there and everyone's different you try and fit it together and work in with the mm. person at their pace and you know some of that work can even be done with people who are mildly demented yeah you know so if you've got you know worked with people who are you know grown up in orphanages abused within the uh, Catholic system mm. and um, or it's not just the Catholics, but yeah. Um, and you can, because a lot of the work is dealing with the emotions, you can get some of that sorted. You know, um, even though they don't remember the information, they that do works. do remember the emotional mm. sense. You know, so someone who you know at the age of seventy something has never been able to sleep in a bed uh, can now actually fall asleep and have a decent sleep yeah you know so that's a, a biggie <laughs> you know it's a big one because mm. um, yeah. I guess I, I recently came across a, more sort of the complex trauma mm. and how it's not necessarily one individual event no so complex usually that means more, over years yeah yeah and so yeah. when triggered you don't it's not like you go back to an event you know like a man with a gun and a mm, thing yeah. and a what yeah you know it's more uh, an emotional flashback yes it, yeah flashbacks can happen yes and that's not going to be uh, conducive to living a nice happy life because no. yeah so yeah trying to get but you know it's about for me um, you know, I try and teach them all the skills to cope. And then we might process that trauma, mm. but I need them to have the skills first. You've got to be almost skilled so up you, you before don't, they can yeah. go into the deep dive. Yeah, because you don't want to re-traumatise them. No. Yeah, and then 
you know, so they talk about the three phases of treat treatment. Which is? Um, so, you know, getting them skilled up, you know, increase their tolerance for distress, because a lot of people who've had that, their tolerance for distress is quite... Quite Wife thin. Yeah. Um, uh, and they have a whole lot of views about mm. the distress yeah. That might that might might make them even scared more scared of that. Yeah. Um, so, getting them skilled up in a whole lot of uh, what we call coping resources. Yep. And then getting into the trauma. And that's and the third phase. No, that's the second. So the first phase is the coping coping yep. skills. The second phase would be the processing of the trauma. And there are a number of ways you can do that or mix and match. And then the third phase would be like um, setting up a future, a future template yep. in EMDR. In EMDR, eye movement desensitisation and reprocessing. Yeah. They talk about future templates. Yeah. Yeah. So you still have the memories, hopefully, but um, yeah, flashbacks. But the emotions around them. Hmm. Are significantly reduced mm. and I was listening to a sleep physician some years ago and he was saying that's what REM sleep is about to reduce the, the emotions around a memory mm. and to process whatever happened yesterday but if your brain keeps recurring bad dreams nightmares or flashbacks your brain can't process it you know so so there's uh, various ways that uh, people work to do that. Um, it's almost, it seems to me almost like um, mental health and developing to coping tools is, is becoming more and more widespread, more, more discussed. Mm. Um, yet, we still individually and collectively have a long way to go. Oh, sure. Sure. And that's hard work and it can be scary work too. And yeah. Yeah. So, and it takes a few years. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it might, might take a year, two years to get the coping skills on board. Um, and they're coping with stuff and they can get on with things. And then you can do the processing. Now we can get in yeah. to the stuff. And then, you know, and then, you know, getting, so, you know, you might not finish a session, so you have longer sessions. Because yeah. I don't want anyone to leave, you know, all over the place. Yes. You know, they're not going to be safe driving. Mm. You know, they're going to go out and shoot up uh, just to um, get themselves calmed down. Yeah. You've got to get all that <laughs> happened in the session. Um, yeah. So, um, and that, you know, you might. Pro so, I haven't done four hours myself, but I do know of other colleagues, much more expert than myself, who have done up four hours of mm. work just to get to that point where they can feel that the person is safe to go home. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And you, then you can't charge for that if you're privately. No. <laughs> no. So, the great thing about working at the hospital is I can do that work. It's not just ten sessions. Yes. You can't do that work in ten sessions. Yeah. You know, like with the Medicare, and a lot of these people don't have the money, you know, to 
to um, do the work. So yeah. That, so that's where the, you know, um, the health system comes on board for doing yeah. some of that. And the more trauma informed they become, yeah, then. Uh, and in the past, there have been people who have been traumatised by the health system who hasn't recognised what's going on. Yeah. You know? And sometimes people, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between a bipolar and a complex trauma, and they get labelled with bipolar. And treated accordingly. Yeah. And treated accordingly, yeah. Um, um, or... They get, you know, someone gets told they've got um, some cognitive uh, problems, their memory isn't so great, but it's not actually a problem with their memory, it's just that they're dis dissociating. Yes. Yeah. And then they get put on drugs that might help with, say, a dementia, but it actually makes, uh, makes the, the dissociation worse. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, so... So we have a good psychiatrist. Full range of stuff to do. Yeah, who, who, who can pick up on that sort of stuff. Mm. But, you know, so. How incumbent do you think it is upon even just like everyday folk to invest in their coping tools? Oh, I think it's critical for yeah. everybody. I do it all the time myself. You know, what do you do? Oh, well, the first thing I learned was, uh, you know, looking at your thinking and getting that sorted. And so I, mm. that just becomes a habit for me. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's a habit. And, you know. Because um, you're, you're dealing with almost like um, the, the lagging end of it all, where people have had the exposure, they haven't had the coping mechanisms. Mm. It's been ingra ingrained, mm -hmm. and ingrained. Their thinking yeah. becomes. Yeah, I, I see a lot of younger people privately. And they, so yeah. I see, you know, people who are eighteen, you know, um, mm. coming um, with issues like that, um, and it's great because then you can get in a bit early, so they don't start making all the mistakes, mm. and have a whole lifetime of um, of pain. Yeah. You know, so unfortunately then you've got 10 sessions to get them, get, get some coping skills on board and that's about what you can do yeah. in that 10 sessions. Yeah. 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 And yeah, so, yeah. Because mm. it strikes me that we're almost apexing at a point where Things are, the pace of change is so quick mm. And, mm. and things that are almost very stable institutions and things mm. that we could navigate our way by, mm. even they're moving or degrading or eroding or mm. changing face and yes. things like that. And the more we progress and the faster things speed up, the more we need to invest in our coping skills. Yes, and learn to jump out of that and have time to slow down. Mm. Yeah, and so what, there's one way of working, it's called internal family systems, and uh, I like that in that it teaches people to do that. Yeah. You know, so you know, it's talking about, you know, we, we all have parts of us, 
and I haven't met anyone yet when I ask them whether it's a colleague or anybody, friend, you know, in your quiet moment, do you have a vulnerable little child inside that you're aware of? Mm. I haven't met anyone who says no, yeah. you know, so I'm saying we all have parts, you know, the other day I was sitting with uh, one of the psychiatrists and this lady was trying to understand about what the parts and I said, well, here he is, who you mm. see today is not the person who, yeah. who is at home. And he just started laughing. He said, oh, you're absolutely right there. Yeah. You know, so um, we all have parts of us and, and you can sit and if you learn to go inside, if you like feel a little bit of emotion, you can go inside with curiosity, be a bit curious. You can locate that where you feel that most. If it's here, you, you can get in touch with it. It's a bit of a uh, intimate thing to do, and just be curious and compassionate to that part mm. of you, and see when you see what happens. You know, like I was saying with the arthritis, you know, with someone who was doing that, not not one of my cases, someone else's, and um, he said to the lady, she just couldn't move for arthritis inside and see you know um, what you notice mm. you, you can I where you feel it most and the short story is she then went inside and she said ah oh, um, there's a part of me that says I've got to stop and have a rest mm. and she was one of these incessant helpers because she hadn't been listening to herself, mm. a part of her knew that she needed to have a rest, not running around looking after everyone else. And so it's sort of, this is where the psychology and the biology interface. Mm. And so that part said to her, well, you're not listening. I'm gonna have to shout. I'm gonna have to throw a tantrum. Shut things down. And then when she started to listen to that and to take a rest, it disappeared, that went away. So sometimes it's pure um, biology, sometimes it's pure psychology, mm. but the two can, can interact. It's funny you say that. Mm. I read an interesting book several years ago about backaches and how a lot of physios spot noted that a shift in mind will remove most backaches, 80%. Mm, and, and it's almost things are brewing up and then the mind's being all busy to like oh we'll deal with that later or this that and the other and da 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 and so so another part of the brain goes okay well we'll shut the oxygen flow down mm. over here in your back mm. and that'll just mm. or actually you know it was more a case of we'll shut the oxygen flow off down here and then we'll give you something else to think about mm. rather than the actual thing that mm. you've, you've got to get into yeah. and that's where we can get physically uncomfortable before we go into the bigger trauma that we want to go, yeah. need to go. And sometimes it's about picking up on the early warning signs. Mm. And we've all made, I've made that mistake with pain. You know, you push yeah. through it and then suddenly, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I had an interesting experience when I was learning hypnosis. I had some pain that was actually waking me up. 
Mm. And I was learning to do this hypnosis and we had to practice on each other. So I said, you know, so in 20 minutes, I'd had that pain for years. Um, and in a 20 minute session, it was gone, wow. just through hypnosis. And then it took about 12 months. I feel a bit of a niggle, but now I pick up on early warning signs. Yeah. You know, do my stretches, do whatever. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so again, um, there's a lot of, lot of evidence with um, hypnosis and its effect on, its positive, you know, effect on dealing with pain. Mm. Yeah, and in fact, there's hospitals over uh, in Italy and Denmark who just use hypnosis for their operations. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and that, then again, you're using dissociation yes. in a positive way. Positive way, yeah. 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 What have you learned about yourself in this journey? Oh, um, I think as a human being, all human beings, we're, we're um, wonderful. We've got so much potential mm. um, for, for healing and for good stuff, but also for horrible stuff. Yes. And I think we, given the circumstances, we, you know, people say I could never do that horrible stuff, but I, given the circumstances, yeah. I don't think, well, me personally, you know, if you saw your kid about to be raped, you'd be in there, you'd put a, you'd, you'd cave the bloke's head in to stop it from happening, if mm. that's the only chance you got, you know, and people say to, friends say, oh, I could never kill, I said, well, mm. you know, <laughs> depends on the circumstances, you, yeah. you know, so, I think we're amazing, you know, um, uh, creations as, as such, and we're still learning about ourselves. Mm. You know, there's still so much more to learn. And if you do that, you know, a lot of the um, spiritual practices, you know, that teach you to go inwards, you know, and everyone will have a different experience. But when I go there, it's bigger than the universe. Yeah. You know, you're not going to explore all those parts of you, you know, otherwise you wouldn't be doing anything else. Yes. So I guess the trick is about getting the balance mm. between inner and outer, what you've got to do, enjoyable stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah, so that that is, mm. yeah. So yeah, the spiritual side can come in. I think, uh, you know, you, you can use that also very positively for people. So if they've got a belief, if they have a belief, you can, if they have a Christian belief and you've got some of, you know some of that, you can use that to help them actually progress further. Mm. Yeah. And I was talking to a psychiatrist um, a while back and I th I'm not sure where, you know, but He's saying, yeah, he finds he's not a, I don't think he's a Christian, but he, there might be a, other beliefs too, you know. Yeah. But the, all the main belief systems are pretty similar in their teaching, you know, about yeah. what they teach. Yeah, so um, rather than not go there, yes. um, a lot of people don't. Well, I hear, I always ask those questions. Yeah. And see if there's anything there that, that 
can be useful to help the person move on. Mm. You know, so if they believe that there's um, that there's a loving God, you know, that wants the best for them, uh, that wants to have a personal relationship with them, then then we can use that and and you know. If they can start doing that for themselves, then they, they can ask that to flow through them, you know. Mm. So, um, and it, if you've got someone who, with those sorts of beliefs, then they can do that, um, that compassionate focused therapy um, quite well. Yeah. 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 One of the last questions I ask all my guests is, it's a hypothetical one, but we find it fun. Um, if you could take a little nugget of information and mm. upload it into the collective consciousness, so everyone just got mm. it, mm. what would it be? Um, approach, approach yourself and all the parts of you and other people with curiosity and compassion. Mm. Mm. I like that. So curiosity means you'll find out what's going on without jumping to judgment. Yes. And, and, uh, and then the compassion is you see the pain and whether it's in yourself or parts of yourself or in something else and you make a commitment to either reduce it or alleviate it. Mm. Yeah, so that's what I would um, upload if I could. I know. like that. Yeah. It's been lovely talking to you today, Richard. Oh, it's been nice chatting to you. If people wanted to come and find you, where can they find you? Um, I have, um, they can find me at uh, Foss Street, Unit 3, 25 Foss Street, not far from here, just across the road. Yeah. I'm there part time. And I have a mobile zero four double nine one five double eight one nine privately. That's yeah. for private work, and uh, otherwise it's through a GP referral to Fremantle Old Adult Mental Health Services. Mm. Yeah, and then if they need psychology, uh, it will come through to us. But there's a team there that will go out and find out whether they need psychology or not. Because there are other things that could be done that uh, don't need that intensive work that can be helpful. Hmm. Mm. Thank you very much for your time. You're welcome.